welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 69 for March 2017. I'm your co-host, the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host, the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Yay, March, another month closer to Kansas Fest. <laughs> yeah, it's coming up soon. In fact, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, early registration opens uh, at the end of this month, right? Yep, um, and uh, I, I will bet $20 or of, of somebody else's money that Ken Gagne is the first one to uh, to sign up for that. He usually <laughs> is anyway, so. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Well, uh, yeah, I'm sure by the time this show goes out, uh, it will be open, so everybody should uh, run, don't walk to your web browsers and uh, sign up. Wow. Kansas Fest might have already happened by the time this thing goes out. <laughs> Hope not. <laughs> no, no, no. How have you been, Quinn? I've been good. I've been good. Uh, I've been doing some Apple II stuff. Uh, I got my uh, 3D printer up and running again. Um, the uh, the Apple II community banded together and put together a, uh, a new enclosure for the floppy emu Model B. And uh, yeah, so I had made one a while back that was sort of okay. Uh, it didn't fit great and it had some, some issues. Uh, so, but a bunch of people bunch of people got together on the Facebook group and uh, pooled their efforts and designed a really nice model that uh, matches the look of the Apple IIc. And uh, you can order it from Thingiverse, or you can print it out yourself if you have a printer, uh, which I do. So I did. Hmm. And uh, it's fantastic. So uh, really, uh, really enjoying it. I only had black filament so in the printer. So mine uh, is the Bell and Howell edition is what I figured. Oh, nice. The, the Darth Vader version. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll be bringing that to K-Fest for sure. It's a, it's a really nice model. Uh, what about you? What are you up to? I uh, got a new job that uh, I'm sort of looking forward to, sort of afraid uh, about. It's in a new field that I've never worked in before, mm. making significantly less money. Um, but I think it's going to be a thing of, you know, like, what's my happiness worth? And uh, mm-hmm. am I willing to take less money to be happy? And I think the answer is going to be yes. But that starts on Tuesday. Yeah. And so I'm... Looking forward to starting at a uh, local university in their library. I will be a oh. librarian in the stacks, so, so to speak. Oh, or, cool. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. You. Yeah, qual- qual- quality of life is, is the most important thing. And uh, I feel like a library probably suits you pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where nobody can talk to me and nobody has to see me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got something in the notes here about Apple II ROMs. What's up there? Oh, um, well, I've been... I've been trying to get this Rev Zero Apple II working again. And um, it's been a bit of a struggle because everything I do, it results in that same, I have a YouTube video of, of what happens. Basically, I turn the thing on, nothing happens. I hit the reset button and it just goes into this beeping loop over and over again and it never gets past the, the characters on the screen. And I noticed as I was looking in this thing, I don't actually know what kind of uh, ROMs I have in there because they're, they don't have Apple part numbers. They're the AMI gray ROMs and and um, so if anyone has tips on um, identifying ROMs by looking at them without, I guess I could just plug them into another machine and see what happens. But I, I'm, I'm concerned that one of those might be bad. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, okay. Anyway. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing. Cool. All right. Well, enough of pretending to like each other. We <laughs> should uh, roll all, roll on into our interview here. We've got uh, Craig Peterson on the show today. Mm, uh, yeah. He spent some time uh, at uh, Chinook and uh, working on the no-slot clock and uh, other cool Apple II stuff. So uh, let's uh, jump into that, shall we? Sounds good to me. 
Hi, this is Gary Little, author of Inside the Apple IIe, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. Craig, uh, welcome to Open Apple. Hello there. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. <laughs> so the, yes. <laughs> the question we always like to start with, uh, what was your first exposure to the Apple II? First exposure? I guess uh, because I was aware of what was going on, I was looking around at everything. Um, that is to say, um, I saw the Poly 88, the MSI, the Altair, all these things were happening. And so then I started getting kind of lustful. And uh, I'm trying to decide what I, what would be uh, a good a good box for me to uh, invest in. And in the end, I chose uh, an Apple II, and it was a, a good choice, I think, in the end. But uh, but it was just because I happened to have lived in a time when all this great stuff was happening. And um, it's funny because prior to that, well, I had kind of gotten involved in uh, computer ideas a little bit. Um, I had taken some classes at the local college in Fortran, PL1, COBOL, and various things like that. And then all of a sudden, you could get your own computer. Um, so at any rate, I, I kind of looked around at things and then settled on getting an Apple II. So why an Apple II instead of, say, you know, the, the MSI or the Altair or some of these other computers? I think the the, the same thing most people kind of like. It had uh, color graphics and... Uh, and there's a lot of publication support for it too. Okay. Because, uh, I think, um, one of the things that really made a big difference at that point in time was there were so many periodicals of one kind or another that supported all of these boxes. And in particular, the Apple II and the 6502 chip. Um, so that made it pretty easy to kind of dig in without investing any more money than put it across to buy a magazine. Um, and then that, you know, it, it starts, uh, creating the salivary glands and then you want to get something. Um, I find it kind of interesting that in those days, well, like my first Apple II system cost me two grand in today's world. That's a ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> so that in that world, that was ton squared of money, you know, but it was still, uh, an, uh, an amazing time to be able to do the things that, that you could do. So was that that first Apple II? Was it like an original Apple II or a two plus? Uh, it was an Apple II. Uh, was it was not uh, you know didn't have the uh, the it had integer basic did not have the Apple software on in it. Wow, so very early. Yeah, I mean it was uh, like nineteen seventy eight. So it was early on, but um, one of the first projects of all things that I wanted to do. I thought that would be an interesting thing to do in comparing uh, the different machines because three of the popular consumer machines at the time were uh, the TRS-80 and the Apple II and uh, the Chiclet keyboard on the Commodore. And, and anyway, the Apple was kind of uh, seemed to be a better choice, but I thought, okay, I'll sit down and I'll write a program and see how fast it runs on all of them. And uh, the program I chose to write actually was calculating pi. <laughs> and uh, But by the time I actually did it, I had already purchased an Apple II. And so I'd already made the commitment. But uh, but I sat down and uh, in machine code, <laughs> I wrote a program to calculate pi to 36,000 digits. And that was my, uh, that was kind of my introduction to the whole programming side of things inside of the Apple II. 
Um, it was great. It was, it was just, you know, it was a, a tremendous opportunity to, to play with a toy. I have, uh, basically, I've never really been much of a gamer kind of person. So, but this was for me the real game. Was just doing things like that. Do you remember what happened to that uh, first Apple II? Uh, the first Apple II should, I'm pretty sure it's up in my attic. Hmm. Yeah, because I did buy an AppleSoft ROM, which I plugged into it. And, uh, and then I've also, I also got an Apple IIe. I have to look up here to make sure. That's really the, cool. Uh, attic, you know, after, yeah, well, this is 78 to now, so that's like 40 years. So the attic is pretty, pretty full of stuff. It's kind of hard to find everything. <laughs> <laughs> that that first Apple II, if, if if it's a Rev Zero, it might be worth some real money. Uh, you mean like a, a regular integer basic type guy? Yeah, th- yeah. There's a few variations there early on, but uh, if it's uh, does it have vent slots in it? Do you remember? Uh, along the top co- corner edges. Yeah, I, I have to actually look whether what whether there were holes or whether it was actually uh, filled holes. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, but it would have been purchased in uh, early 78. If the serial number is less than 6,000, then it's probably a, re- a revision zero and, and worth quite a bit of money. Ah, well, that's interesting. Well, to me, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. I did get an Apple IIe, which had a, a better keyboard. Um, but, uh, but I saw a lot of those, uh, those kinds of apples because I had children. And at that time, my son was something like six years old, I think. And I started getting involved. And so I ended up uh, later on going over to the school and trying to help them keep their boxes running. Because as you all know, I'm sure that Apple had a really tight relationship with the educational system, which was a pretty smart move, I think. But uh, so there were a lot of, uh, of Apple boxes at the local elementary school in various states of repair and unrepair. And so then I kind of became the fig- figure out how to fix it. Oh, neat. That, uh, it was an interesting time, uh, as it happens, uh, this is all fun and games for me. It wasn't how I made money. Um, as a, a worker bee, I actually do numerical control programming. And, uh, and at that point in time, uh, let's say the late seventies, uh, that was a pretty manual kind of operation. Um, so what we ended up doing, and I ended up, uh, getting so involved in the Apple II stuff that I convinced my company, which is not a big company, but my company to purchase some Apple II. And so then I wrote uh, some programming that allowed us to do um, some more things and make the uh, programming of the machines go faster and easier. Okay. We we started out with an ASR33 teletype machine was our uh, was our output device, really. and uh, And that's because we ran punch tape. And it had a tape punch in it. <laughs> so all we had to do was provide a serial output. Uh, but over, over time, uh, the Apple became an integral part of the things that we did at that company. Oh, I was just going to say, what kinds of things did you do with the Apple II? Did you do actually some of the numerical control stuff on it or? Basically, it was an editing tool. And, uh, the company that worked for, um, made two dimensional cutouts, if you will, in plastic parts. Mm. And the cutouts could be of various shape, but lots of times they were standard shape, like circles and squares and rectangles and triangles and whatever. Um, and so it was pretty easy to put together something that allowed the, uh, uh, let's say, a, an operator. And so they're preparing now a tape to be used in the shop to manufacture parts. 
So when they're preparing it, then they just say, okay, we have this object and it's located over here. So give me one of them. And then it would automatically figure in uh, the offset necessary for the size of the cutter and just make it kind of easy to, uh, to actually prepare the code. Uh, cause when it, the code did, or the, the sort of thing that ran the machine was pretty basic kind of code. That is to say, uh, if you're in the machine, uh, running industry, you know what the G codes are all about. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's basically what it was. Uh, yeah, G codes, M codes, X's and Y's. And you were just telling a machine to go over here and either do a circle, do a straight line or whatever. So, uh, the operator then would actually create these shapes. And then the Apple actually put together the correct G, M, X, Y, whatever. And, uh, and then it also would punch it onto a, onto a tape. Prior to this time, it was necessary for someone to write down by hand, uh, what, uh, the, the positions that the machine had to go to and give that handwritten copy to another guy who sat down at a, let's call it a typewriter that would punch holes in tape. And he had to type that information uh, from a handwritten copy uh, and make a tape from it. Of course, you've got all kinds of human error that happens there. And anyway, so moving into an automated procedure was just a tremendous improvement in the way, from the way things were before. And yet it wasn't that hard to do for the most part. Once you had the ability to grab a, uh, a computer and it was yours, because uh, really before the late 70s, a computer meant an IBM 360 mainframe, not this cute little 8-bit thing that you, you know, spend a thousand dollars for. So uh, it really opened a lot of uh, possibilities for usage. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Actually, now that you mention it, yeah, an Apple II would actually be really great for processing G-code. It's just the sort of simple, you know, ASCII kind of data that uh, that it was really good at. That's interesting. Well, and it's just the, the automation because, uh, um, like I said, uh, in the process that was done at this shop, uh, there was a lot of manual uh, transfer from this to this to this, and you inject errors when you mm -hmm. do that. Um, if you can actually define what you want in a general term, then boom, the automated processing of any computer, in this case an Apple, uh, makes the outcome perfect. It's exactly what you asked for, as long as you asked for the <laughs> right thing. So anyway, it really expedited things and uh, sped up the process. Um, as time went by, uh, I integrated an actual digitizing pad so you could just kind of trace things and it would, using a super serial card, it would read in the information to create uh, great tool paths using that. It was a lot of fun. So how long did you do that sort of thing before you moved on? I did that for probably about... 10 or 15 years, probably. Okay. Um, because uh, when I started doing it, I was the guy writing down the, the numbers. And uh, then some other guy was doing the typing. And then the computers kind of came along. And I did that on a contractual basis, basically, with the company. And then the computer stuff kind of came along. Plus, then I got a, then they actually hired me because uh, they were doing more work and they, they needed, you know, more uh, assistance in this area. And uh, then uh, the microcomputer stuff came along, and I saw what the potential was for that. And then we started integrating that. And uh, eventually, um, the company was purchased by another company, and then the initially got shut down, and uh, the job went away. <laughs> they moved, kind of moved to a different location. 
And at that point in time, then I got involved in, in uh, similar but different things, uh, where in this case, I was making a product and using the apple for that purpose. Um, then when this job died, I ended up getting another job in a company that made the actual hardware that drove the machines. They call them server drives. And uh, those are the things that uh, this code is talking to, if you will. Okay. And then those things actually move the motors and make whatever sort of things that you wanted to have made. At this time, you know, all this stuff was going on. And I would guess that all you guys were kind of aware of it as well. Mm -hmm. There were all kinds of magazines, you know, maybe a half dozen, dozen different magazines that couldn't relate to the Apple II. And so um, it was pretty easy to get interested in reading things. Um, I think I did a fair amount of that before I actually committed to an Apple. Uh, but once I purchased one, then shoosh, I got this thing. I got to do things with it. And uh, so then I subscribed to a lot of the different publications like Nibble and, and Soft Talk and, and A Plus and whatever. Micro was a favorite. Mm -hmm. So I'd read about what other folks are doing. And at this stage of the game, uh, most people are doing pretty bare bones stuff. That is to say, uh, until uh, VisiCalc and AppleWorks came along, most people were down at the bit level making it do cute things. And it was pretty fun to read up on what they were doing. Um, and so eventually then I started writing uh, little articles for these publications. And uh, so then I, I wrote for Call Apple, for Micro, Nibble, A+. Um, just little snippet programs that did things that I thought were kind of neat. And because it was a fledgling industry at that time, then obviously that's what the market magazines were looking for as well. They were looking for any kind of ideas that people might be interested in buying the magazine to read about. I suspect that that kind of exposure um, might have been how um, Chris Adams got in touch with me um, of Chinook. And uh, I was looking through my papers and stuff. And of course, you have to understand, too, that we're transitioning from snail mail only to, you know, things like CompuServe and Genie. And, uh, and eventually, you know, eventually ends up in as the World Wide Web and Internet and all that. But communication stuff back in the beginning was pretty crude. Uh, I didn't necessarily have a lot of uh, copies of things to go by. So I don't remember when Chris and I first got together. I'm guessing he probably contacted me uh, based on maybe some articles that I might have written that he was aware of. But uh, I think Chinook kind of got uh, got their feet on the ground pretty quick, uh, maybe in, in the mid-'80s when uh, Apple came out with the SCSI interface. Because prior to that time, uh, it was difficult to kind of write information or, or write programs and whatnot for, let's say, hard drives in general. You had to write it for a specific one. And so I think uh, at that point in time, the SCSI interface came out, and all of a sudden you had an interface that if you wrote the right code for it, it would work with almost any hard drive. So Chris uh, was putting his company together, Chinook, and building hard drives and kind of felt that uh, he needed certain kind of software support for the hard drives, for testing, for examining the drive and whatnot. So then we got kind of connected up. 
and I then wrote uh, the programs, uh, the Shunex Scuzzy Utilities, that he used to go out with his with his hard drives. I hadn't quite remembered how this went, but as I looked through my uh, letters and whatnot in preparation for our interview tonight, um, I realized that my connection with the no-slot clock came directly because of Chinook. Um, among the things that the SCSI utilities did, Chinook uh, SCSI utilities, was it, it, uh, it tried to figure out how fast uh, the drive would work with different interleaves and with different things, or comparing one hard drive to a different hard drive. Well, and obviously you can only do that if you got a stopwatch someplace. And the early generations of Apple products didn't, you know, didn't come with clocks. So then you didn't necessarily have an easy way to do that. Um, as it happened right about the mid eighties, then the, uh, the GS came out. Um, there were clock cards that were coming out and then the most lot clock itself also. And then there was, I think, a business clock, which was the same idea. But anyway, so I was working in the SCSI utility stuff for Chris, and there was a customer that had one of Chris's drives, and he had a no-slot clock that he used at his Apple. And he had issues with it because the way they did the drivers for the no-slot, uh, it was intimately connected with ProDOS. So as soon as a new issue of ProDOS came out, then the no-slot clock didn't work anymore. <laughs> you needed a new driver. Uh, because things moved around or whatever. So anyway, I got information from this particular customer, and I realized that I had gotten enough familiarity with ProDOS that I realized that there was a way around that, which was just to create a, a system file. And so anyway, I was able to put together the no-slot driver uh, that you could install in ProDOS and basically would work no matter what they did in ProDOS. Um, because the way Protoss worked at that time, at least, it would start up and then would automatically run the first system file that it found in the directory. So then if you just put in the, the system file that installed your clock, then that would automatically happen. You know, you didn't have to make changes to uh, Protoss itself, um, which would fall apart when new versions came out. Anyway, so because of the fact I was doing the SCSI utilities for Chinook, it kind of connected me up with the Muslock clock. So I put together the program for that, contacted Muslock uh, no guys. They, oh, the customer I worked with, John Yandersetz. But then uh, I connected up with Muslock, uh, no and I think I pretty much just gave them what I had because throughout all of the stuff, uh, I, I obviously not, intended not to become Bill Gates. And I was successful in not becoming <laughs> Bill Gates, which is the richest man in the world. <laughs> For me, it was just kind of fun. And uh, and if I were going to get remuneration, mainly it was uh, maybe to buy new hardware, not to buy a new house. <laughs> anyway, so uh, the same sort of driver that I put together for the no slot, I also contacted the business uh, clock card guys and whoever else, because it would work for everything. It would work for GSOS or anything. But that, that was kind of interesting how that came about. And the reason I did anything with Muslot because one of Chinook's customers had it and was having trouble with it. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So w was that uh, the last thing you did f with the Apple II professionally, or was there more things after that? Well, um, some of the things actually happened before that even uh, was because I was writing articles, 
for the various publications. Um, there was a company called Southwestern Data Systems run by a guy named Roger Wagner. And uh, Roger uh, had various programs already in his arsenal. And at a point in time, well, he, uh, he started putting together a project with, uh, what was his name? Peter, what's his name? I not remember now. But it was called a routine machine. And in fact, there were a number of, uh, of software packages kind of like that. Ampersoft and other things. And basically what they did was they took advantage of the ampersand character, which was built into AppleSoft, um, and allowed a person to, uh, add into their AppleSoft programs specialized machine language routines. So, um, in the early 1980s, I uh, actually had put together a lot of things like that. Roger had seen some of them, was interested in some, and also if I would put together others. And so then I actually supplied uh, some of that sort of thing to Southwestern Data Systems. And that was even before the, the NOSLOT or the Chinook or any of that stuff happened. It was just totally fun time to have this, this kind of a toy that could do good work, good uh, usable work. And it didn't, you didn't have to own a IBM mainframe to do it. Getting back to the Nibble Magazine stuff uh, for just a sec, do you remember any of the programs that you submitted? Oh, let's see. A little plus for your Apple II is a program that I wrote in Micro Magazine in, in the 80s. Uh, when the Apple II Plus uh, ROM came out, it had some very simple editing tools where you could move the cursor around on the screen, but the integer Apple didn't have that. And it turned out that it really didn't take too much to write. So I wrote a little, uh, little routine for that. And, uh, another thing for step and trace for the Apple II plus. See, there's another, I think it's FreeCat, which in those days, if you did a catalog, you know, catalog was the way it's like a DIR on a, on a, on a PC. It showed you what's on that uh, floppy disk. Um, so it would tell you all the titles. But it didn't tell you how much room was left on the floppy disk. And so then uh, it was possible to write a little routine then that actually would add that to the catalog. So then when you did a catalog, you'd get all the list of files, put it at the bottom, and it would tell you how many free sectors are still available. Oh, okay. Then uh, another routine was uh, what I call commas, colons, and quote marks. And that was published in a Compute Magazine in 1981. Um, basically, if you did an input statement, uh, in an AppleSoft program, and uh, I guess lots of times, like with addresses or whatever, you could sometimes uh, use characters that the input line didn't like. Right. <laughs> uh, like, for instance, quote marks uh, or certain other characters. And so it would terminate the input as soon as you pressed on that particular um, thing, you know, commas, colons, and quote marks. So anyway, this input routine allowed you to um, input all of those things. And so just, uh, and it was also something if you use in AppleSoft. So now you could actually, uh, have more flexibility in your AppleSoft programs when you wanted to do certain input stuff. Something that might actually have caught Chris Adams' eye, I'm not sure. But, uh, later on in, in like 1982, in Nibble, um, I messed around with the interleaving on the floppy disk for DOS 3.2. Because uh, it seemed like it took an awful long time to, to do certain things, to load things or to save things. And it turned out that part of that was matching up 
the specific interleave of the data on sectors of the drive with the speed of the machine. Uh, that is to say that uh, if, if when you're reading information off of a, of a floppy disk, let's say it's all sequential order, and one, one block is here and the next block is right there, the next rotation position, uh, usually um, the Apple II computer is digesting that first block and it's not really ready to read the next block quite yet. But then when it does get ready, maybe some milliseconds later, that second block, if it was right after the first one, uh, is not read, is not there. So it has to wait for the disk to completely around to find it again, and now it can read that one. Uh, so now if you space these things, uh, so there's more more uh, space between them, more uh, time between them and the rotation, then actually the computer is ready to pick it up and the data is right there. So what you're basically doing there is just matching up the physical locations of things on the on the drive, and this actually applies to hard drives as well as floppies, but uh, with with the needs of the computer, and you can speed up things tremendously, like two or three times faster than it was before, maybe even more. So anyway, I came up with something that uh, that did that and got published in Nimble. And I'm not sure if uh, that was something that uh, that Chris might have seen because it was kind of an endless idea or not. I know that uh, interleaving was uh, uh, messing with the interleaving timing, especially was a, a favorite of software companies back then, especially the game companies to to protect their for their copy protection. Well, yeah, that's uh, I mean, copy protection wise, everything that I ever did was was basically the standard disk because copy protection stuff is just it had to be totally unstandard in order to be uh, a rigid copy protection scheme. Um, it was interesting to kind of take a look, though, because uh, one of the nice things about the Apple II was that it would disassemble things for you. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, Glenn Breeden's software would do the same and much better because it would not only disassemble, it would label it for you, for goodness sakes. That's wonderful <laughs> because then you could go back and kind of reconstruct things. But uh, So then it became possible to kind of look at the code. You're, I mean, you're dealing with an 8-bit machine. And so the instruction set is not as ginormous as it might be with, you know, a 32-bit machine or whatever. And so then uh, it became kind of possible to take a look at the code and see what people were doing and how they did it. And it was fascinating uh, to uh, see how some of the protection schemes worked. Um, I never got um, to a point where I could break protection schemes or anything, but I could see some of the things that they were doing. And it was just fascinating. I think that was the thing about the, the whole machine itself. Uh, it was an open door of all brand new stuff. You know, it's like a whole, whole brand new kind of music or brand new kind of painting or whatever. You had an opportunity to kind of look at it and play with it and, and see what you wanted to see. So have you thought about going back to your Apple II and spending some time with it? <laughs> well, I did when I got uh, some uh, connection from... Uh, who was it? Maybe you guys. Uh, you were talking about um, getting the source code for the SCSI, the um, Chinook SCSI utilities or any of that stuff. Because most of it I, uh, well, probably not the Chinook stuff, but most of the other things that I ever did, uh, uh, I just I stuck up on boards forever so people could have them. But, uh, so it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't my intent to do anything of uh, great financial uh impact because of all that stuff. Um, but I'm kind of in the MS-DOS world at this point in time. 
Um, my, uh, see, all my kids have iPhones, so that's an Apple product. <laughs> my, da- my daughter has, uh, has a Mac. Um, I think she might have a, both a PC and a Mac. Yeah, and a friend of mine has, a has a Mac. I mean, my attic is full of Apple products, um, including, you know, hardware. I've got, you know, super serial card and all kinds of stuff. Do you ever have uh, pieces? Go ahead. Oh, do you ever, do you ever have the urge to dust it off uh, in the attic and, uh, go through it for <laughs> nostalgia's sake or well, reminiscence? Uh, in part, perhaps, because uh, there's information on... Uh, I've got so many floppies, especially I've got lots of three and a half. Uh, I mean, that's a ton of information. One and a half meg in every one of those things, or 800, whichever. And uh, I have so many of them that it would probably take the rest of my lifetime to even catalog and figure out what's there. But uh, I'm sure I have source code for lots of things up there. And... Uh, so, but like I had said earlier also, uh, when you've got, you know, 30, 40 years of, uh, attic space used up there, um, then that's, that, the pile gets pretty deep. <laughs> and so it's kind of hard to find things, you know. I'm not sure how many apples I got up there. I know I've got my original 512K. When I did the work for Roger, um, one of the things that happened is I was able to get a new Mac when they first came out. And, uh, oh, nice. Uh, it was kind of interesting in a way because I had quite a bit of experience with the Apple II stuff. And the Apple II kind of started as a stunted growth machine in that it only had 40 columns wide. And the keyboard was kind of a keyboard, but not as splendiferous as, as you might want to have. As time went by, you know, we got 80-column cards and we got uh, the two we had a better keyboard and so forth and so on. Okay, so then 1984 comes along. And the Mac comes along, and it has this itty-bitty little 9-inch screen. And it was like, wait a minute, what are you guys doing? <laughs> uh, of course, what you don't realize, that screen was like uh, maybe four times as better resolution than anything that you'd ever seen before. Uh, mm-hmm. So even though it was in no color, it was black and white at that time. Um, but uh, So I got an original 128K Mac, and uh, I did do some things with it, not programming-wise, just using it. Um, because it was pretty neat because now, you know, you got more WYSIWYG out of it. You could actually uh, type characters that were more splendiferous than dot matrix characters were. It was a pretty uh, difficult machine to work with because it only had 128 meg. And uh, so then I, I did the process where you put in 512 and... Uh, Let's see, I think there are, what, one, two, three, 16 pins times, is it 24? I solder suck a whole bunch of stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of those pins had to be solder sucked. And then, then solder in the new pins. Anyway, so I turned it into a 512. Um, that obviously just indicates that I must like doing this crap because it's a pretty arduous task. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm not sure all of the boxes that I've got upstairs. That, that box actually is an original. It's the one with everybody's signature inside of the 128. Um, they're scratched inside of the Mac with the original software developers from Apple. There's a, uh, a guy named Jason Scott, actually, who's uh, a big preservationist and historian. And I bet, if you're willing... We could put you in touch with him, and he'd be more than happy to help you go through and preserve all that software. Ah, 
Yeah, I've, uh, well, I need to figure out which things are which because I have uh, a mix of IBM stuff and Apple stuff and Mac stuff. Uh, when you get to the three and a half inch media, uh, and plus, you know, after 20, 30 years, the labels start falling off <laughs> because the, the adhesive doesn't last very good in an attic where it gets hot. And uh, anyway, so I probably will need to go through uh, some kind of a process where I'm going to uh, do something with that stuff. Uh, sure. So that might be an idea. Okay. But um, it's been a lot of fun getting through all of this stuff to the point where I'm at now because it does, you know, um, I've often thought that uh, maybe all of us in this discussion have lived through a most interesting time in history because the computer, the personal computer, really, because the computer itself has been existing for well before this time, but it wasn't in the hands of people, if I could use that technical term. Um, it was a, a rich thing, only for corporate use, really, for the most part. Um, but all of a sudden, this microcomputers that came along, and so you ended up putting this same basic tool in the hands of so many people that out in that blanket of people, there are guys with great ideas. And sheesh, what we've got now is just remarkable. Mm-hmm. What I do at this point in time, I'm basically retired, but I'm still a contract engineer in motion control. And I do work with a company that uh, sells very large machinery that's that's uh, run with uh, computer-controlled controllers, if you will, that drive the, the motors and drives and all that. And they sell their product all over the world um, so that I often become, become part of the repair uh, process if they're having a problem. So I have uh, I've repaired machines in Russia, Croatia, Brazil, Mexico, all of the United States. And I do it while I'm sitting in my home in Santa Monica. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you can put together remote control software that does that. Anyway, so it's, it's pretty amazing. And it's, it's been really pretty cool to live in this time and see it all happening and be a part of it in, in small ways, really. Some of my first connections, I think, uh, with any of the subject matter were with uh, calculators. I became enamored over the HP 35 calculator, which was way back in the 70s. And, uh, and I remember, let's see, I guess it's even before that. I don't know if you guys have seen or heard any of these things, but there was a Bomar calculator that preceded that. And, uh, you could buy it in, in May Company. And it was a basically a red LED, uh, letters, uh, four function calculator with almost nothing else to it. And it came out for like maybe $180. But, uh, and so then from there, oh, I wanted something like that. So then HP came out with something, and that was the HP 35. And uh, then they came out with the HP 25, the HP 67, which was a card reader. So that all these things are kind of moving in a comp uh, computational direction. From all those things, then my early times, and I, had, I decided to kind of take advantage of the local community college that we had here. And so I went to that. And uh, various language classes like uh, Fortran, COBOL, PL1, IBM Assembly. Um, in the state of California, at that point in time, you could take a, a, any class in the community college, and I think the registration fee was under $10 for being in the college. Wow. <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> it's not that way now, but, I mean, it was unreal. 
And so uh, you could just pick a subject and go learn about it. So all of that stuff ended up uh, kind of preparing an individual for when the microcomputers came out. And now you can have your own, my goodness. You just couldn't resist it. <laughs> yeah, the HP 35, I think, drew a lot of us into computers. And uh, and it, it has a cult following to this day. Uh, in fact, I still have my HP 48. And uh, yeah, they'll be uh, prying that from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> Even though it was an R, uh, RPM logic? Oh, I love the RPM. <laughs> that's my favorite thing. I can't use regular calculators anymore. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's kind of funny because uh, I've often heard that kind of subject matter where if you start out learning to program as this language or as that, you know, Lisp or whatever, it, it, it changes your brain, you know. <laughs> All of a sudden, you're, you're going to be good at that and it's going to be really hard. <laughs> To do it this other way, yeah. because I don't know, the neurons have just said, "No, baby, this is the way you told me before. This is the way it's going to be." <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny because you, you think that way. It's almost like language in a way, mm-hmm. because the way we structure the English language, you have our prepositions and stuff. But sometimes other languages put the subject first and the verb second. Um, but it just you know you just you start a certain way and it kind of dooms you to kind of following that same path. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah, I. Uh... Uh, RPN, RPN just always made sense to me, and I think it's probably because I started with it at a, at a young age, for sure. Um, well, it provided interesting opportunities to uh, take advantage of it. You know, you throw things up on the stack so that when things are happening, uh, it comes down and you're ready to kind of go at it. Yeah. All right. Um, well, that's all the questions I had. Mike, do you have any others? Uh, no, you, that was, that was great. Very, uh, very thorough telling there. And, um, it sounds like, uh, for you, it was just a natural progression, you know, from the calculators and, and, uh, your early work right into the Apple II. Pretty much. Uh, and you know, because of what it is, it, it's, it's kind of almost like a toy, except there really isn't. It can do tons of, you know, you could run World War II with the stupid thing. <laughs> um, you compare it to the ENIAC or whatever the first things, uh, uh, I don't know if it was equal to that entire room that they had the NEI computer in or not, <laughs> uh, but it's a lot pretty easier. Close. Yeah, pretty close. <laughs> All right, Craig. Well, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Okay. Well, I hope uh, I hope what I've said has been of some interest to somebody. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. This is great stuff. Okay, it was my pleasure. Yeah, that's that's about it. Thank you very much for joining us. We had a great time. Yeah. Thanks, Craig. may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Craig. That was awesome. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's talk about some news here, Mike. We've got a few items to talk about. News for everyone. All right. So the uh, first news item is a cool one. Uh, the I guess, is it officially the very first virus, or is it just uh, an Apple II virus, an early one? Uh, well, I, you know, thing, a, lot, a lot of things like that these days um, have become at least semi-apocryphal. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think most people, at least what I've read, are, are comfortable co- comfortable calling it one of the very first because, you know, I mean, it, it depends. Like, if you take into account what what 4AM is discovering with that, that one disk that he's working on that only boots a number of times and then <laughs> destroys itself, I, I guess that could be called a virus. And that came that was a couple of years before... Elk cloner, but yes. um, yeah. So, so elk cloner is is now officially thirty five years old, and the BGR tracked down uh, the author, and he was like, "What? What are you talking about? People are still talking about this." <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, the uh, the article's pretty funny. He's like, I wrote games and I wrote a multi-user operating system and <laughs> I did all this other stuff and everybody wants to talk about this stupid thing I did when I was 12. <laughs> this is what I was going, I'm going to be remembered for. But, um, you know, considering uh, how nasty some, some of the stuff that came later uh, later on, how, how bad that got, his was uh, a pretty innocuous. I think mm-hmm. it just kind of like popped up a cute little poem and then continued on booting. So yeah, yeah, and the poem is actually uh, pretty funny for you know a fifteen year old kid or however old he was. Uh, did you ever have Elk Cloner on any of your discs? I did. Yeah, it showed up on. I think uh, um, I talked about this this version of a game called uh, Jungle Hunt that that mm-hmm. booted up with a crack screen that called it something else uh, jung- jungle with a different word um, oh yes yes um, and then after you hit the crack screen it, it popped up with this thing so um, <laughs> I, I do think it's funny like um, I for a while I, I had um, I don't know it was like Clam AV or something on my iMac and when I would go to like Asimov and download a, a disc image of Elk Cloner <laughs> they still have definitions for it it would pop up and say virus <laughs> it's pretty hilarious so. that's fantastic really. <laughs> that's amazing I, I think stuff gets entered into those databases and then just forgotten about. I don't think they ever clear any of that stuff out. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't think I ever had Elk Cloner, honestly, on anything. Uh, I guess uh, uh, I was pretty, in a, grew up in a pretty isolated area, so I guess I uh, just never made it up there. Yep. You Canadians and <laughs> backwards technology and no virus having and stuff. Yeah, well, the viruses are all killed in the winter, so that's, that's uh, right. Yeah, nothing survives that. Yeah, it's a natural, uh, natural resistance. All right, moving right along. Uh, it's, well, it's been 28 seconds since we talked about an Apple One auction, so <laughs> here's uh, another one, I guess. Yep, uh, this is another um, Brecker auction house. Is that I think how you pronounce it, Brecker or something like that? Sure. They're a German auction house, and they've auctioned off a few of these, and they're really good at using the buzzwords that the blogs like because mm-hmm. it always seems to be Brecker that that gets the the you know the the, the headlines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this 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 thing is everywhere. Yeah. Now they're saying that this is one of like eight that are still in operation. I don't know where that number comes from. Um, yeah, that that bugged me about this whole listing is the authority with which they state that there are 60 remaining and only eight working. Uh, I don't know how they can know that. Yeah, I, I think the, the 50 to 60 number comes from um, uh, Mike Willigal's uh, had that has that uh, Apple One registry, mm-hmm, and he's mm-hmm. he's done a he's done a really great job of researching and tracking down um, many many of these. And but I think even he is admit he is you know the first to tell you that that number is just sort of a an estimate based on what he's found, and that there might be plenty of others out there. We don't know now that the eight functional. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm, I'm sure the registered number is low, and yeah, the eight functional. I mean, I, I bet most of them are functional. It's just that people are too scared to turn them on for fear of you know blowing a capacitor or something and causing damage. Yep. Uh, since it is so valuable, but. Uh, yeah, I, I I would be shocked if only eight were still functional. That's a that's a bit of a silly claim, but yeah, like you say, it's <laughs> uh, hype to uh, to get uh, the headlines, I guess. Uh, there is an uh, they they have posted a, a YouTube video um, with some you know uh, really uh, love lovingly lit footage of this thing, uh, very close up, you know, Apple One porn, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> Um, that, that, and we'll link to that in the show notes, but, uh, I'm sure that this will go for a lot of money. So if you have a spare 750 grand lying around and you don't want to buy a house or invest in your kid's college fund or something, <laughs> you can buy one of these. Yes. 
And actually, the the price that they're saying it's going to likely go for is actually pretty low uh, for what these things. I mean, these things were pushing a million dollars there at one point, right after Jobs' death, and now they're way back down under 200k. It seems like for the most part. So uh, I guess you could say the Apple One bubble burst. Now this does have the um, number on it, and and both Jobs and Waz have said that they did not uh, put serial numbers on the Apple Ones, but the batch that went to the original bite shop, uh, the 50 or 75 or whatever it was, those had, uh, uh, I guess, hand numbers on the back that it looks like bite shop may have used those as inventory control and it has one mm. of those. So it's certainly an early, early, early model, but. Oh, that's cool. Interesting little provenance there. And it's working. So, you know, if you don't <laughs> have to repair one, and this is yeah. the one to get. I guess. Yay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of working, uh, Michael Packard has been hard at work. As uh, anyone smooth, who's, Gwen, smooth. Yeah, you like that? Yeah. I, I told you I went to Segway school. Awesome. <laughs> I, I got a B plus. Uh, so if you've been on Facebook at all, <laughs> either on the Apple II Enthusiasts group or on the, here I go, uh, arcade game design on the Apple? No, I don't know. There, there's this other Facebook group about this book that we always talk about, and I always butcher the name because it's a really long name of this book. Anyway, uh, it's uh, it's uh, primarily, it's a group started by Michael Packard, and uh, he started it as kind of a, a way to uh, share people making games on the Apple II, and uh, in particular his game Alien Downpour uh, that he's been working very hard on and has made really impressive progress on it. It's It, it really looks fantastic, and uh, the news here is that he's now accepting uh, pre-orders for it. So if you would like your very own copy of Alien Downpour, and he's uh, putting them on floppy disks and packaging them in authentic uh, early 80s, late 70s uh, Ziploc baggy style with uh, color inserts and everything, uh, he's really going all out here. So uh, if you want a, uh, a new Apple II game that looks old, uh, this might be the one for you. Yep, uh, $20 free shipping, and you can get it on 5.25 DOS 3.3 or cassette. Uh, for for twenty dollars, and if you don't want to hunt down that book that that Quinn did not get the title of, <laughs> um, you can just go to berighteous dot com, all one word, and we'll have that in the show notes. Cool. Oh, and it, yeah, and and uh, it will be released. It says uh, uh, on April sixteenth, the fortieth birthday of the Apple II. Yeah, I love the cassette option. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know. I don't. I, I haven't owned a cassette player in thirty years, but <laughs> I, but I want the cassette of this for some reason. Well, now you have a reason to. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, another hardworking Apple II developer is uh, Dagan Brock, and he's uh, released some new stuff. Uh, tell us about this, Mike. Yeah, so Ken Gagney posted over on uh, a2central.com that Dagan has been busy, and he's released, uh, um, it looks like a, a new version of GS+. Uh, this is the open-source cross-platform Apple II GS emulator based on kegs and GS port. Um, it looks like it's still in alpha right now, but the latest build supports, build supports drag and drop disk images onto the emulator, um, and they will show up on in the Finder desktop. Uh, he's also released Buckshot, an open source cross-platform image conversion utility. It, it will take uh, modern, we're talking picture images here, not disk images. Uh, it will convert uh, modern formats, PNG, JPEG, BMP, etc., and turn them into stuff, something that the Apple II uh, can understand. And we've talked about the work that they've done over in Compsys Apple II before about that. And finally, uh, KSynthEd, a small music editor and player library for the Apple II based on KSynth. This will be loaded into AppleSoft Basic and called to play songs or notes. 
Excellent. And there's uh, a cool video uh, that Dagan has put out uh, demoing the usage of all these tools uh, to make a, a little game uh, on the 8-bit in Applesoft Basic. So uh, we'll uh, link to that as well. All right. Uh, let's see. So this one, I mean, you've definitely heard this story already. It's 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 been absolutely everywhere. But as the official Apple II podcast of record, we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention this. So uh, usually we complain about the RCR scooping us. This time the whole world did. But such is the burden of a monthly show. Uh, yes. Yeah, so if you don't already know what we're talking about, uh, some guy in Seattle went to a thrift store and found a stack of Apple documents. And apparently this, this particular Goodwill, they sell by the pound. So he bought these things. Uh, and it was a whole bunch of internal memos about Apple's uh, consideration of whether they should uh, support copy protection uh, on their own disks and whether they should supply that as a service to other uh, developers. And uh, it, it is an amazing read. Uh, I'm sure by now you've already read it all, but if not, we will definitely link to that in the uh, show notes. Yeah, pretty crazy that uh, that was just out there and could have been thrown away because I know that stuff doesn't stay on shelves long at places like that. And uh, who knows what might have happened to it. So good for him for saving uh I guess these documents were called the Software Security from Apple's Friends and Enemies, or S-Safe, and it features all of the common names that you, you've heard of, of at Apple uh, from the day, Randy Wigginton, Waz, and a bunch of others. Um, yeah, it's a PDF, and it's out there, and you can read it if you haven't. Yep. Yeah, the uh, the TLDR is they discovered pretty, cool, pretty quickly that copy protection uh, doesn't really stop anybody, and that's probably a waste of their time. <laughs> Well, and I think if you know if you if you listen to the interviews with Waz and Jobs back then, when whenever anybody would bring up copy protection and, and things like that, their their stance was basically that that you know uh, we think piracy is bad and bad for your soul and you shouldn't uh, steal software. But it's just we don't we haven't found a, a working method, so we don't really do that. Of course, then they turn around and try to copy Apple logo and see what happens. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did, and they did actually have a product. Uh, I think it was called. DOS 3.3P for protected uh, mm -hmm. that they used, I think, on some of their own stuff. And uh, also, I think they sold it to some other companies as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the interesting thing, about, interesting thing about copy protection, which I think they learned in these memos pretty quickly, is that it uh, it's very effective at punishing the honest people. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. you know, the, the pirates are, are, are not going to be stopped for more than a few hours by it. And so they're going to steal all the games. And then all the other stuff that's used by the honest people uh, is not copyable. Uh, and now that we want to preserve it all, we can't. So uh, th thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to say that, you know, what, what, uh, 4am and and uh, especially Cucumba are discovering is that while some of these cracks that were out there or that showed up in Computus Magazine made it so that you could have a working version on on your own computer, there was so much more to it than than even I think probably anybody outside those companies knew at the time, you know, because they, it looks like the pirates back then just peeled off enough to get it onto another disc and if that meant stripping out levels or, or videos, that's what they did, but there's just so much more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, it's funny. Back then, copy protection didn't work at all, and now it's working really well <laughs> because there's all this stuff that we can't preserve or it's a lot of hassle <laughs> to preserve it. As 4AM is fond of saying, copy protection works. 
Okay, moving right along. Uh, so we talked about Alien Downpour. Well, that's not the only uh, modern Apple II game in current development. Uh, another one that's uh, in the headlines again here is Nox Archaist uh, over the from the fine folks at 6502 Workshop. And this is a uh, an, uh, an RPG in the style of the Ultimas. And uh, they uh, they have an update here on what, they're, what they've been up to. Their team has doubled in size from two to four. Ooh. And uh, they got new combat modes and lots of new artwork. Uh, this game is really, really coming along. I have to say, it's I'm impressed that uh, the progress they're making and uh, how much they're sticking with this. I mean, this is this is not a fly by night or kind of the kind of operation that the you know they're going to give up on it. It's uh, they're they're definitely committed to this. Yeah, nothing that you would see over here at Open Apple, in other words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Mark Limert, uh, one of the developers, uh, posted at sixty five hundred two workshop their latest uh, status update. Uh, a couple of nice little uh, screenshots there, and uh, the current status on the combat system they say is about halfway done. Uh, they have a proof of concept where six player characters can wage battles with multiple mobs. Um, the dungeons are operational, and they're working on completing that tile set. And they have rough schematics complete for the inventory and merchant transaction systems. And uh, it looks like they're still shooting for a 2017 release date. So, uh, guys, we're looking forward to, to getting our hands on that. You guys need to come on our show as well and talk about it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Very exciting stuff. And uh, just, just a suggestion, if you wanted to have it done in time for K-Fest in July, <laughs> that might be pretty awesome. Just saying. Hint, hint, elbow, elbow. <laughs> we need someone to finally uh, upstage uh, all the folks at, uh, at Lawless Legends. <laughs> <laughs> Those jerks. <laughs> Darn them being good at stuff. Being awesome. <laughs> yeah. How dare you be amazing. That's right. At everything. Uh, <clears throat> right. Looking at you, Martin Hay and Brennan Roberts. Uh, okay. Moving right along. Uh, let's see. Oz K-Fest 2017. Uh, that's, the, that's the Atari 8-bit thing, right? It's in New Zealand. Is that right? It is. Yep. Happens once every three years. Yeah. Then, that sounds right. Uh, mm-hmm. Sure. That's the one. <laughs> Let's just see just how wrong to, we can get this. That's, add that to the list of corrections for next yeah. month. <laughs> see, if, if we're going to get it all wrong anyway, we might as well have fun and get it real as wrong as possible. I sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Andrew uh, Rowan, uh, who has been on our show before, and uh, we, we appreciate when he writes in to let us know what, what we're wrong about, <laughs> yes. um, has posted over on the OzKFest website that uh, this next one, 2017, will be happening from the 30, 31st of August to the 3rd of September. In uh, Bri- Bribe, Bribe, uh, sorry guys, I don't speak Australian, um, <laughs> uh, island in Queen- Queensland, Australia. So if you're down in that section of the world, go there and check it out. Excellent. Uh, well, back here in not Oz K-Fest, just re- regular vanilla K-Fest, US mm-hmm. K-Fest, I don't know, just K-Fest. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, c- classic K-Fest, OG K-Fest. <laughs> there you go. I'll stop. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Huh. So, <laughs> news of this year's Kansas Fest is coming in fast and furious, and the latest news is Brutal Deluxe, the famous French programming group from France, will be doing the keynote, which is very, very exciting. Yeah, uh, so get there, because it'll be worth it. Yeah, yeah. If they're coming from France, then nobody else has any excuse for not making it. So it's uh, Antoine and uh, whichever Olivier... Uh, Olivier's name that I'll forget and say wrong. He, he yes. will, he's the other one. Yes. Sorry, one, Olivier. One of the Olivier's. Yes. Yeah. So between them and Michael Mulhern, who treks from Australia every year, nobody else has any excuse for her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, to, to that. That's going to be mm-hmm. very, it's going to be good stuff. 
Uh, and if we haven't mentioned it already, uh, you should uh, register because by the time this comes out, early registration will will be open. So you can perhaps be second after Ken. That's right. All right. Well, uh, another uh, KFest uh, notable and community uh, luminary, John Brooks, is at it again. Uh, this time he has created a new sector viewer. Uh, runs in Protoss, but it's for imaging or viewing the sectors on DOS 3.3 disks. And uh, it's a nice little utility with a nice UI. And uh, the lead that I just buried is that it's 508 bytes long, which is astonishing. 503. 503. Wow. See there. He. But in the middle of that sentence, he he found five more bytes to get That's up. That's right, even smaller. Yep. Amazing. Uh, in fact, it's it's small enough that uh, the entire program is listed in a, uh, a blog post uh, at callapple.org. Yeah, that's what I love that he actually just lists the the hex in a, yep. <laughs> in, in a in a message. It's like here here's the code. Copy and paste uh, into your favorite emulator. Yeah, yeah, it fits in one Protoss block, which is uh, significant. Uh, very very cool stuff that John has been up to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think uh, this went around uh, a couple of the outlets, but uh, Virtual 2 has been updated uh, twice because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it was updated and then uh, full screen uh, broke and then it was updated again quite quickly and it's fixed. Yep, so version 7.6 is out and uh, this one does require El Capitan on your Mac or later. And uh, it looks like, yeah, the, the big feature was the uh, full screen thing. They fixed a small bug that uh, caused an application to ignore ROM files. Closing the virtual machine while the inspector window is open doesn't crash anymore, and uh, the screen refresh performance is faster. Yes. Good stuff. Do love virtual, too. I was using it earlier today, in fact. I was working on my uh, Kansas Fest project, and uh, I have it open uh, on my desktop right now. Can't wait to see it. <laughs> okay, so uh, some new photos uh, have come about. This has also uh, hit the mainstream press. You may have seen this, but uh, there was uh, an Apple II Forever event. I guess this was this was the Apple IIc uh, launch. Is that right? In 1984. Yeah, um, right around the time that they they were doing the um, 100 Days of Macintosh or whatever uh, event. The, the the Apple II group staged this uh, Apple II Forever event to to fool people into thinking they still gave a damn about that computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that happened at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. Um, I think they said something like 50,000 units sold in like the first 24 hours for the Apple IIc, if I, if I remember that properly. Could be. Um, yeah, but these are a bunch of new photos that, that have not been out and about um, before of that event. Uh, there's a nice article at the uh, San Francisco Chronicle. Um, oh, and they have the uh, the music video for the Apple II Forever song that we had at the end of the last episode. Yes, that that's the reason to click on this link. Uh, <laughs> there's some neat old photos in there of the Steves, don't get me wrong, but that video, oh my gosh, that video. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's the most 80s thing you can possibly imagine. And the great thing about it is what, what made me laugh is there's, you know, there's this... Uh, I don't know if it's actually Pat Benatar or just a sound alike, but this Pat Benatar-esque uh, singer is singing this song, Apple II Forever, and there's some lines in it about how we're taking you into the future, and there's various mentions of what's coming next in the future, and every time one of those lines is in the song, in this video, there's a Lisa or a Mac on the screen. Uh. <laughs> so right in about a third of this Apple II Forever video is Lisa and Mac stuff, which That's uh, awesome. I found <laughs> hilarious. Uh, oh, Jobs, you just can't help yourself. 
and because I can't help mentioning help not mentioning an Apple three uh, in in the show. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. There was one. <laughs> yes. Well, the Apple three was was canceled on on the same day that this the Apple two forever event happened. Oh, is that right? Oh, and it yep. was in the video. Oh, that's amazing. Yep. <laughs> yes, that was when they sent the uh, the the um, <clears throat> memo to the engineering group saying you will stop development on this thing. Um, it stayed on their price lists, I think, until like September of eighty five, just selling off the uh, inventory. But yeah, that's uh, it was done, and uh, no mention of that whatsoever. Swept quietly under the carpet, along with uh, the the power book that catches on fire and a few other, <laughs> you know, the the Pippin and yeah. other things like that. So, so there was one Apple three guy in the back of that audience that saw that and just threw a tomato at the screen. That and, was me. Yeah. <laughs> You canceled it. Why is it in that video? <laughs> That's right. My feelings are hurt. <laughs> uh, I will say that uh, I, I learned a factoid in this uh, article that I didn't know about that uh, Apple IIc launch event. Uh, it's sort of a nice early indicator of Apple's uh, soon-to-be commonplace flair for these events. Uh, I guess they had planted a bunch of Apple employees throughout the audience, and they mm-hmm. were all concealing Apple IICs, and they all stood up and held them over their heads uh, at, at some at some moment, just as a demonstration of how light and portable the machine is. And uh, I just that 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 seemed really clever to me. I like that. Yeah, you can always tell how much Apple doesn't care about a product by how much they try to promote that they do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's an inverse, inversely proportional relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, they said apparently they spent $750,000 in that event, which in 19, $1984, that's an astonishing amount of money yeah. for, uh, for a launch event. But uh and I think they were also trying to cover up the, uh, you know, Jobs had predicted that 50,000 or 100,000 Macs would sell in 100 days or something like that. And it got nowhere close to that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they sold, what, 50,000 in the first two months or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, moving right along. So we uh, we mentioned Jason Scott when we were talking to Craig there earlier. And uh, this is, uh, <laughs> speaking of things that went big, this thing went big. I think oh, yeah. I think this thing popped up in all of my news feeds from every source. And, Multiple times. Yeah, on Facebook and Twitter. And this got retweeted to me 58 times. Uh, yeah. So Jason Scott, when he throws his weight around, uh, the, the uh, tech community listens. So uh, yeah, he's throwing the, down the gauntlet uh, that he's collecting all Apple II software and preserving it all right now forever. So uh, send in your Apple II discs and get them imaged. And uh, so that's that's apparently happening. And uh, he's getting, yeah, lots of press on this, which is great because this is, uh, the clock is ticking on these floppy disks. Well, what's nice is uh, he's specifically aimed at uh, people who are not us. Um, mm-hmm. Because you know you and I and the hobbyists, uh, we've we've been doing this for a while now, and we've pretty much scoured every every last sector on every last disc that we've ever had. But uh, he's now talking to the people who had an Apple II in the '80s, a teacher or something like that, and used it and put it in the closet and never saw it again, and may still have collections of stuff that we don't know is out there. And and so it, you know, for for targeting that message, it's been remarkably effective at getting beyond the hobbyist borders, and sometimes. We struggle with that. So it's great to have uh, a guy like Jason who can grab those headlines doing just that. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it's safe to say that every floppy owned by a Kansas Fest attendee is at this point preserved. But, uh, you know, it's <laughs> several it, times. Yeah, but it, yeah, it really is the Craig Petersons of the world who, you know, he has 
the source code for the Noslock clock driver in his attic. You know, that's we want that preserved. Please, you know, please go dig that out and send that to Jason Scott because that's the kind of stuff that that uh, yeah we really need to preserve while we can. And I'm sure there's a lot of folks like that that have floppies sitting around their house somewhere that have who knows what uh, gems on them. Yep. So we hope that uh, we hope we can make that connection with Craig and Jason. We'll let you know how that goes. Yeah, for sure. Got to close that ear gap. All right. Speaking of Australians, uh, like we were earlier, uh, these segues are forced. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> Man, we're good I'll, at this. Yeah, I'll just go home. Uh, <laughs> Alex, uh, Luke, Luke, uh, uh, that guy in Australia. Um, the other Alex in the other in Australia. Alex in Australia. Uh, he is. Uh, he's got a blog that I like quite a bit. Uh, it doesn't update often, but when it does, it's always a gem. And this is no exception. He's been playing with uh, double high res on the eight bits and kind of building on some of the stuff that uh, Bill Buckles was doing. Uh, with uh, dithering and conversion and kind of seeing, kind of taking it from a slightly different angle. And uh, he's got some really nice results uh, that he's uh, got some great uh, shots of here in his blog post. Yeah, I really enjoy that, um, That you know, his, his articles are fairly technical and they, they do take a little time to read if, if you really want to, but they're not they're not so deep that um, you'll, you can, you, you're, head is spinning and you're going, what is he talking about? It's, it's fairly well, it's, well, it's very well written. Somebody who doesn't have a lot of technical knowledge about the Apple II, but might still be a hobbyist and is interested should be able to follow along pretty easily. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. My favorite part of this article is the, uh, he really demonstrates the extent to which the double high res implementation on the 2GS is broken. (laughs) And (laughs) I kind of knew it was different, but I don't think I realized how how bad it is. Uh, When you're pushing the limits of dithering and and blending colors like he is here, you find out that, oh, it's it's just awful. And uh, he goes into some details as to why, actually. uh, he, which I didn't know uh, that uh, the 2GS is actually converting uh, to RGB and then back to uh, double high res and then poss- potentially converting it again for composite display. So yeah, he, he details how that process works in the 2GS. But uh, yeah, it was clearly it was a hack for them to, to support it at all on that machine. And uh, I guess it's nice that it works at all, but it does not look good. Yeah, he's got a couple of uh, screenshot comparisons that that uh, very... It's a very stark difference there when you look at like double high res uh, on the 2E as opposed to the same thing running on the 2GS. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I like double high res. I've been uh, playing with it a little bit myself and uh, it's challenging, but it's definitely capable of some cool stuff. Yep. Yeah, actually, he talks a little bit about that in the blog post too, just the the reason double high res didn't get more play. It, it came out just a little too late. You know, it was... Uh, kind of, it was very end of the life of the platform, and you know the 16-bit stuff was coming on, and it was getting all the attention, and so double high res just kind of never, never had its, never had a fair shot, really. And it's unfortunate too, because it's it's definitely a stark, it, it's definitely um, it's a huge step up from from the standard high res graphics, and and it would have been great to see more commercial products, uh, games and things like that using using DHGR. Yeah, yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, I don't I don't think people realize what the 2e is you know capable of graphics wise if they haven't seen a lot of the dhgr stuff but i think the programming curve learning curve on it is so steep that i think that it probably delayed rollout of double high res games for a couple of years uh, as people were figuring out how to get performance out of it and how to write code for it and uh, by the time that you know that uh, that skill set was built up among the developers it was kind of too too late but uh, you know there are some great double high res games out there so uh, i recommend people check them out Yep. 
Okay, so this next item is my favorite uh, of the month. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I so I clicked on this link. Not I had actually forgotten about this because it, it was mm-hmm. so long since the last episode. But uh, so I clicked on the link and I I thought it was just a historical video for a minute. And <laughs> but there was a few things that were sort of off. And then I realized, oh, now I remember this thing. And oh my god, this is the funniest one yet. So I'm bearing the lead here. Uh, Computer show, the uh, spoof of Computer Chronicles and similar shows from the 80s and specifically uh, has, specifically yeah. a spoof of Gary uh, um, Gary oh, Kildall Gary Kildall yeah yes uh, they have a third episode this one is on printers and yeah his his Gary Kildall just turned up to 11 in this one uh, <laughs> it's absolutely priceless uh, the, the sort of fake 80s guest and the real modern day guests are all kind of dumbfounded as he just acts like a child the entire time <laughs> my, my favorite I think my favorite moment is when he he pulls out like the the banner that's been clearly <laughs> printed with print shop. Yes, because, because you know because it's perforated paper. Um, he's making fun of their printer for not being able to print out something that's that long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is Happy Birthday, Gary, or something ridiculous. But like the yeah. quotes out of this thing are just great. Like the 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 his female co-host, she's like she's talking about where she was working, and it's not a hangout for bad dudes. <laughs> And uh, his response, something about like, we were jamming paper into an air purifier for six months. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The the pronunciation, the like wireless technology, but because of the the way they timed it, it's wireless technology. Yeah. (laughs) Because he didn't know what wireless was because he's in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite along those lines is uh, the HP people uh, give their website and uh, the the, the 80s guest is is like, where is that? And they're like, they're on the internet. It's on the internet. And she's like, the what now? And he leans over and goes, brick and mortar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's priceless, especially I love the 80s guest who's simultaneously uh, sort of fending off Gary Kildall's uh, juvenile behavior, but also dumbfounded by what the modern people are talking about. So she's walking that line and she just nails it. It's it's fantastic. Well, what's I think was really well done here was this is actually this is actually a commercial for the for the HP's new printer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so cleverly done that like if if all commercials were like that, I'd I'd have I'd throw <laughs> away my DVR and just sit and watch the commercials because. Uh, this is genius. I mean, it, yeah. it's just remarkable yeah. how, how great they, they integrated this. They really did. I mean, kudos to the HP people who obviously are in on it, but uh, it, it it has a feel of like a Colbert bit where the interviewees don't know that this is all a joke, you know, uh, or like a like a Daily Show bit. So, but obviously they are. But I mean, they the the HP reps do this great job of sort of playing along, but acting dumbfounded at Gary's behavior and why did these people not understand these things? And uh, you know, yeah, at one point the. The uh, the '80s guest asks what the character per minute rate is on this new printer, and then the <laughs> HP rep just sort of very sensitively explains that they don't measure speed that way anymore on printers. <laughs> it's yeah, it's pretty great. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if you're curious, the printer in question is, I guess, it's it is actually pretty cool to their credit. Uh, it's uh, it's this new printer that has uh, the print head doesn't move. It's got one giant. Uh, inkjet printhead that's the width of the page so it's literally just uh, moving the page in front of the printhead and prints the entire width at once so uh, I guess it's just insanely fast and it sounds insanely complex but uh, yeah, something like 70 pages a minute I mean yeah which is ridiculous for a color inkjet that's amazing well, 
they they were so clever at it that now we're doing a commercial for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't mind because this this bit yeah. is so funny that you it know is. what I'll I'll plug your stuff, <laughs> HP. There, there you go. <laughs> I would not buy it because I'm sure they have DRM ink cartridges that last a week. So. Uh. Yeah, now would you buy this next product that we're about to talk about? Uh, I, I would not buy it, but I do love it. Uh, <laughs> this is the retro iPhone uh, from Colorware. Now, you, when I saw this, I'm like, oh, neat, it's a case. No, it's actually a customized iPhone. The actual physical body of the phone's been modified uh, to look like, uh, they say, an early Mac, but it's pretty clearly an Apple II. <laughs> Yeah, this this to me looks like the Snow White language. I mean, it's got the little vent hole cases on, on the curve of the side, like the 2E case, the rainbow uh, Apple logo, and the beige coloring. Um, unfortunately, this thing cost $1,900. Yeah, that's crazy talk. I'm sorry. For something that's going to be obsolete in six months, I, yeah, I, I don't know who would spend that kind of money for this. I really don't. That's uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, apparently, there was there was an even more expensive version. The first twenty five had a, a limited numbering or something like that. Um, but those are all gone. So somebody bought these things. Hmm, amazing. If you did, if you did, I'd like to hear from you because I want to know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen retro styled cases for iPhones, and I would buy one of those. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is beautifully done. Don't get me wrong. But that that's an awful lot of money for uh, for for a neat look that. You know, you'll have for a little while, I guess. All right. Um, okay. Well, I think that does it for the news, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got a fun section coming up. <laughs> That's going to be feedback. We got lots of feedback. Mm. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. All right, what do we got, Quinn? Well, let's see. The first one I've got uh, is an email from uh, listener Brian. He says, Dear Quinn and Mike, I blame you completely. Last week I drove sure, over well. a river. <laughs> yes. Last week I drove over a river and through the woods, not to my grandmother's house, <laughs> just somebody from Craigslist to buy an Apple IIGS that had been lovingly kept in a closet for the last 25 years. Awesome. When, uh, when my Laser 128 died, and then I sold my Mac LC3 with the Apple IIe card, and then all of my Apple II software moved from drawer to drawer, but was never used again. Uh, he says, I know from your podcast and the work of 4AM and others that these floppies are degrading, and I was sad to find that virtually all of mine were unreadable. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, a lot of the 5 and a quarter and 3.5-inch floppies that belong to the people who had the 2GS work just fine. In fact, I don't think I've wanna run across one that doesn't. So now we get to the crux here. He says, mine spent a lot of time in a basement. Theirs did not. I'm curious what your experience has been with the lifespan of floppies and how much storage condition affects their ability to survive. Um, and he finishes, even though I don't know anything about programming, I still enjoy your podcasts the way I enjoy movies, even though I don't know anything about filmmaking. It's just good, <laughs> clean fun for the whole family. And well, the geeks in the family anyway. Uh, well, thank awesome. you very much, Brian. Yeah. Uh, this is a great question. Um you know, my understanding, so I, I'm really surprised that none of his floppies were readable. Uh, I think that's quite unusual. Um, you know, my floppies were in a basement for 35 years, uh, and they were probably 99% readable. I think I only found two or three uh, in the whole batch that weren't. And I don't know, honestly, I think some of them were bad back in the day, too, because some of them had uh, little diacritical marks on them that I think I might have written to my 12-year-old self to note that they were bad. But um, 
I think probably the main thing is humidity. You know, the basements in question, in my case, are all dry. So I think mold can be the real killer. Uh, you know, we've uh, seen at K-Fest, uh, there was, we had sort of a mini side session at K-Fest one year about how to clean mold off of floppy disks because that's a pretty common thing. It gets built up and it can be hard to see if you don't look at them at just the right angle. But, uh, you know, if you put one of those in the drive, of course, it gums up the head. And then every disc after that isn't going to be unreadable. So it might just be that his, his, that the head is bad uh, or is dirty in the drive. Um, or, uh, you know, maybe all of his got moldy if the base basement was humid. So, uh, yeah, that might be the case. Uh, any, what are your thoughts on this, Mike? Yeah, I think, I mean, I live in Denver and it's, we don't, we've heard of humidity, but we don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mold and moisture aren't generally a, a big problem, you know, as long as you store them away from rats and things like that. I, uh, um, I, I do, I do think there is something to the quality of the discs sometimes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially if you stack them, you know, if you stack them on top of each other rather than stand them up vertically. Sometimes, um, like it, it, it I know back in the eighties and a lot of the magazines, they would, you would see these articles about, you know, the, the big name companies like Verbatim and, and Elephant charging extra for their discs was just a bunch of sales nonsense and to to fool you into paying more when the cheap ones work just fine. But I, I found, at least in my experiences, more of the failures come from the, the non-name generic ones that I bought than when my dad paid extra to get the Verbatims and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So Yeah, I noticed that as well. There was a distinct pattern where the ones that were bad in my collection were the crappy ones that were from some discount bin for sure. Uh, yeah, I definitely noticed that. And yeah, you, you know, what you said about storing them vertically is a big deal because yeah, the other killer besides mold is uh, delamination, where the you know the magnetic medium flakes off of the mylar base, and uh, that that will tend to be exacerbated if they're stored horizontally because the weight of them will make the you know the mylar stick to the uh, inside of the sleeve, and it'll tend to lift off then when you try to spin the disc, and so uh, yeah, those could uh, those could all be factors, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, first and foremost, I would say, Brian, also try just cleaning your drive heads, try a different drive. You know, if those discs were all written with like a five and a quarter, an early five and a quarter inch disc two, uh, one of the belt drive ones, you know, the speed on those was often off. And so the discs might be unreadable to any other drive, but they were readable with that drive that was at the wrong speed. Uh, I've seen that as well. So um, it could be another reason. Uh, just a number of little things that you can try like that. You know, there's there are programs out there that, that will help you adjust the speed of your floppy drives as well. Sometimes the those things get a little bit out of sync if they sync, you know, if they get towards the lower end of the, the upper end and they're uh, reading too fast or too slow, that can cause what look like data errors even though the disk is fine. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's fairly easy to, it's been a long time since I've done this, but it's pretty easy to adjust the speed on those things. You just boot the, you boot the software and it kind of has a little, you know, a, a, like a progress bar sort of a thing with a plus in the middle of it. And as you slow it down, it moves to the left. And when you speed it up, it moves to the right. So, yep. and it's just uh, what a, a, poten- a, a pot and a, a screwdriver. Yeah. about it. Yeah, pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, Copy 2 Plus has a speed uh, calibration it, yep. routine in it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck with that, Brian. Let us know if you have any luck. Um, moving along, a uh, friend of the show, Charles Mengen of Retro Connector fame, uh, wrote in to let us know he's got some new products. And uh, let's see, he's got some new interface boards that will let you connect USB mice, keyboards, and joysticks to an Apple IIe. Uh, three, and then three adapter boards to connect an Apple II joystick keyboard or mouse to a modern USB Mac or PC. 
which is pretty cool. I would so if you want to use like a, that'd be great for using a you know an emulator to play your games with a real Apple II joystick. Um, so the keyboard and joystick ones are uh, have been around for a while, but the mouse ones are new. And uh, in fact, he sent me one of his uh, USB to uh, Apple II converter board, so you can plug a USB mouse into your Apple II, and it's very cool. It's a nice little board, and it just plugs right into the back of your uh, of your Apple II, and, and away you go. So, uh, awesome. yeah, thanks for letting us know about that, Charles. Uh, let's see. Next one I've got is from uh, listener Zellen, who says, Hi there, love the show. My single complaint is that it isn't long enough or frequent enough for me to stretch out to a full month of walking home commute. I wanted to add a counterbalance to the naysayers on magazine reading. I love it. Keep it up. Don't listen to them. Well, thank you very much. That'll be uh, back next month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we ran out of time this month for it, but uh, it will be back. Uh, a quick note on EDD and FDI files. I believe FDI is the format used by Open Emulator, which currently reads EDDs the best. MAME is getting better, but still doesn't quite handle the format produced by I'm Fed Up. Unfortunately, Open Emulator doesn't do the Apple IIe uh, yet. If you're brave and do some Xcode, there's an alpha source code only version out there. Check the Open Emulator news group. I hope to get the rough edges polished off in the next couple of months. Well, that's great news. Yeah, we had some confusion last month about EDD files and FDI and, and so forth. So uh, it's good to have that uh, cleared up. So yeah, the news last month was uh, that uh, I'm fed up will produce FDI files, which is the EDD format used read by Open Emulator, yep. is, if I understand that correctly. So good to have those details. Uh, oh, <laughs> God, almost forgot. That was my other favorite part of the computer show uh, video was that they do a printer race at the end between the two printers. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and of course, the HP has already printed a page while the dot matrix is still calibrating the head. Mm. But um then it starts printing and they can't you all you can hear is the top matrix sound and they're trying to yell <laughs> over it and the sound guy gets involved and he's yelling at them and the cameraman's yelling it's just it's priceless so funny yeah oh, good times okay uh next email uh from uh listener sean uh from uh australia and uh, he <laughs> he writes to say no corrections necessary yay uh He's thanking, thanking us for the mention of WASFest PR number six uh, last <laughs> month. And uh, he says, yes, he does have future WASFests appropriately numbered, and some still have an appropriate number chosen. Uh, and, oh, I guess he's already planning for the uh, 16 sector uh, episode, which or ep, uh, edition, which will be uh, number 16. Uh, anyway, so uh, he says uh, he's got uh, three or four Skype sessions set up for WASFest PR number six from around the globe to discuss preservation, and uh, he links to us, gives us a link to that. So we will link to that in the show notes. I think that was one of the few things we got right last time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Next up, uh, listener Yorma, who was on the show recently, our roundtable. He mm-hmm. says, great episode at all. As always, please do keep the segment of soft talk in your, pos- in your podcast. It's a really nice historical dig into the past of Apple II magazines. He says, no worries on the three-hour episodes. I can take it. <laughs> so lots of fans of the soft talk reading. That's good. Yes. Uh, and of course, friend of the show, Paul Ekstrom uh, has written in and we had a bit of an email thread going here. So we were talking about uh, Sierra Online, which I think at the time was just online. Is that right? And uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, back in the days of Mystery House and the, the early high res adventures, 
we were talking about how I think I mentioned that they used a graphics magician-like uh, tool for building their images. You know, they were vector-drawn images uh, that recorded the moves used to draw them and played them back as a sort of form of hyper-image compression. And um, I think we weren't sure what program they actually used. This was too early for a graphics magician. It came later, I think. But uh, I think uh, Paul mentions that he thinks they used Paddle Graphics, which was a similar program, but earlier. Is that what you got out of this? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Cool. So I thought maybe they had a custom in-house tool or something. I wasn't sure. But uh, uh, I know at some point they switched to using the Apple graphics tablet because I've seen interviews with Roberta Williams where she talked about that and what a what a big uh, advantage that was. Okay, and moving right along. Lots of feedback this month. Uh, so listener Alex writes, uh, Axel, sorry, writes in and uh, so we talked last month about the transputer card, and we had some confusion about what a transputer yeah. is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Axel has some clarification for us. He says, thanks for mentioning my T2A2 card in your podcast, the transputer thing. Well, you seem to diagonally jump into that post from somewhere. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you're right. It kind, of, it kind of leaves you puzzled what a transputer actually is. I suggest reading my posts in the proper order. That might shed some light on that miracle. <laughs> That said, uh, I have added an intro for those coming out of the cold to get into the right direction. So we have some works. links here, which we'll put in the show notes. Yeah. So, uh, and yes, the he says, and yes, the transputer is an accelerator, like one ha- like having an 8386 in it, just way cooler because it's asymmetric multiprocessor. So, nice. uh, yeah, so I guess it is, it's like a coprocessor board kind of, um, but lets you have, you know, sort of incompatible architectures uh, uh, inserted. <laughs> I wonder if that makes the... Uh, uh, PC transporter for the 2GS. I wonder if it makes that if that's a transputer. I don't know because mm. that was a that was a completely different architecture. Basically, it was an PCXT on a board basically that you stuck in your 2GS and it used your keyboard. Um, didn't even didn't even use the floppy drive. It had some floppy drives, but uh, I guess there wasn't much for communication between the two machines. So I don't know if that counts. It was pretty much just using the 2GS for power and keyboard. <laughs> so transporter transputer. Yeah, there you go. PC transputer. That'll be the next thing. All right, moving right along. Uh, Listener Jim writes in. uh, This is a a lengthy email, which I wish I had time to read, but we uh, don't. Uh, But there's lots of great info in here. So in our soft talk reading last month, we... Uh, skimmed over. One of the things we we glossed over was an ad for Muse Supertext 2, a word processor. And uh, I think I called it not very interesting. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, Jim. Sorry, Jim. Uh, So Jim was one of the co-founders of Muse, as it turns out, and uh, has a lot of information about Supertext 2. And uh, I wonder, maybe we can paste this into the show notes or something. There's a lot of great information here. Um, I wish I had time to read it all. But uh, yeah, he talks all about the story of Muse and and uh, how Supertext was built and uh, talks a little bit about that ad even. So um, yeah, uh, maybe, or maybe we just get Jim on the show later. For those, uh, for those, um, watching the soft talk scan stuff, uh, this is Jim Sammons who did this soft talk Apple project stap and, and scanned all those and, uh, put them up on the internet archives and we've been using them for the readings. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks for writing in Jim. Uh, we'll find a way to get that information out. 
Uh, all right. Uh, listener Tom writes in to say, hey, guys, have you played a demo of the upcoming Dogfighters of Mars 2? I think it's good enough to review. If you want a preview, just send an email and uh, we would like that. <laughs> yes, we would very much. <laughs> yes. And I, I've seen some screenshots of this on Facebook and it does look great. I believe it's a double low res uh, game and uh, which is sort of the, the hip thing right now. And it, uh, it's looking really good. So by all means, Tom, send that our way. And we will talk about it and, of course, link to it if it's available. Uh, all right. So we got another na- another email from a uh, listener. Mm, apologies for this butchering. Huh. Uh, oh, uh, Chris. Uh, I'll go with Chris. It's, he's, got, go. he's got that as a nickname. Listener Chris says, great, great podcast. Thanks for that. Uh, I'm listening for quite a while now. Really enjoy it. And he, he says a short note on the transputer again. Uh, he says the term is probably better known in the Atari community. Uh, Atari actually did sell uh, a branded transputer card. Uh, so he says it's a computer architecture for parallel processing, lets you add multiple CPUs to share the workload. Uh, Atari combined the transputer concept with its Blossom video system, uh, paging Kevin Savitz. So the idea was obviously to do graphics-intense calculations. Uh, so he gives us a link to that, uh, to, to the Atari device that did this. And uh, he says he was very interested in it back at the time, um, but Atari was already disintegrating, so he didn't get more involved. Uh, so that's good to know. Uh, and we got to mention Kevin Savitz as a result, so thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, all right. And last email I have here is from listener Grasana. Apologies for, again, butchering that. Uh, yes, uh, I enjoyed the new segment. Going through old magazines is fun. I especially enjoyed the old ads from long lost companies. A lot of the retro computing scene focuses on new developments and popular old things. So it's nice to take a look at some of the weird forgotten stuff. Yeah, that's a really great way to put that. Because uh, I agree. I think that's what's interesting about the soft talk is, yeah, we can talk about Choplifter and Loadrunner all day, but everybody knows that stuff. Uh, I am much more interested in the uh, the tiny companies that vanished a year later and that sort of stuff. All right, well, that's all the email I have. Mike, do you have anything? Well, of course, I have my monthly apology mm, um, mm-hmm. to give, and, and the past few have been to uh, um, <clears throat> Bill Martins and, and Brian Weiser over at Call Apple, and this month is uh, no different, of course. <laughs> I uh, Last month, I had mistakenly stated that uh, Tony Diaz was still involved with the uh, GBBS Pro uh, open sourcing, and he is not. They would like me to, to uh, let everyone know that uh, it is now – uh, strictly a call Apple thing that he's doing with uh, Kevin Smallwood. So Bill and and Brian, I'm very, very sorry. And if I could offer you a free subscription, I would, but it's already free. So <laughs> I'll try not to do it next time. <laughs> yes, our apologies and uh, yay open source. We're really glad that GBBS is GPL. Yep. So I think that's about it for this month, unless you've got anything else. No, I think that is about it. So, uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Craig, once again for being on the show with us. Indeed, yeah. Great great interview. Thanks. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I guess we'll see everybody next month. All right. Have a good one, everybody. Look what the computer wizards at Apple have come up with now. It has the power of these two computers, a built-in disk drive. It can run over 10,000 different programs. You get everything you need to hook it right up to your TV. You can even add a mouse. Introducing the Apple IIc. Now comes the real magic. You can take it home for under $1,300. 
been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. I told you I went to Segway school. I, I got a B plus.